I'd love for you to open your Bible in two places. The first one is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so if you can grab that, uh, you can also use your phone. Uh, remember, we always have the, the notes app, um, so you can go to just passioncreek.com. The first action point there, the button is message notes, so you can take notes and email it to yourself. So we're going to be, in, again, in two passages. Number one is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which we'll read shortly, and then we're going to use that as a launching pad to look at John 9 and look at Jesus' interaction with his disciples and teaching us this lesson about suffering. So I'm excited for what we have for tonight. And uh, I am so grateful for all y'all who texted me this week and said, hey, you cried on Sunday. I know I cried saying bye to Shay and we had a great wedding yesterday. It was a really good time. So uh, thank you for those text messages. I need that. I need the tough love. And, and guess what? Real men cry. That's right. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, lately on Sabbath... Our family's been, uh, our family gathers around the TV and we turn on YouTube. We have one of those smart TVs where you can do that. And we've been playing the ultimate classic, the Disney sing-along songs. Anybody remember that growing up? Any 90s kids, right? And it's like they're on Main Street and they're just goofies getting ready for the big day. It's amazing. And so we just kind of introduced them to this show. And what's funny is it's become every Sabbath, uh, our kids say, let's do the Disney sing-along songs. And so there's only a few available on YouTube. So we just play them over and over and over again. It's just, just really funny because every week two things happen and they get immediately frustrated because it shows, I don't even know what we call that next generation. Isn't it generation alpha? Cause it's starting over. Anyways, there's two things I can't stand. Number one are ads. They're like, what is happening? Why did you turn off the Disney sing-along songs? I'm like, it's called a commercial, honey. It's okay. Wait literally five seconds. Back in the day, we had to wait 45 seconds, two minutes. You can wait. And so they're just so frustrated. They ask me every single week. But the other one they can't stand is buffering. You know, when the little circle starts going around, they're like, what has happened? They're so frustrated. It's, of course, in the middle of the chorus every single time, and they want to sing the Disney sing-along songs, and they just give me a death glare, like, Daddy, fix it and fix it now. And again, I think some of us, we remember the AOL days. We remember, like, the, those weird, you know, it's like, oh, good, I might get an email today, you know? And um, so we're just grateful that the Internet works at all. But the funniest thing is my, the oldest goes up and starts, Starts touching the screen and swiping, you know, trying to fix the whole thing like it's an iPhone. But my oldest insists, just keep pressing play. Just press play. Don't, come on, just press play and, and push through it. And so I try to bring out, you know, the, the smart side of me and, and, and explain the process of buffering and how in life you have to let things process. And if you skip it, you know, if you just press play, it's going to, guess what? It's going to play for two seconds and it's going to pause again. So let's be patient. It's Sabbath day, remember? You know, right? Let's relax, right? You know? And so I try to explain that to her and she just wants to press play, play, play. And I wonder how often we do that with God. We have these seasons where God is buffering us. And in reality, what we should be doing, instead of just pushing through, pressing play and moving on with life, we ought to really open up the eyes of our heart and say, okay, God, what is this you're loading into my life? What is this that you're teaching me? I want to have eyes to see the lessons and the love that you have for me in this season. I really do believe that there's something to that, that suffering is really much God buffering us. And I think for a lot of us, life doesn't make sense because we just keep insisting on ignoring the buffering and pushing through. And we get confused about the will of God because we're only seeing our story playing a few frames at a time and then it inevitably pauses yet again. 
I think Paul is making this case in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I think he's making a case that we actually need suffering in our life. As Christians, as followers of the way, we are following a king who had the ultimate suffering. He died in our place and rose again in victory. We all love resurrection, but you have to have a death in order to get to the resurrection. And so Paul makes this point for us in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12. And I want us just to really marinate on these passages these next few Sundays leading up to Easter. Because Easter is so much about victory, about resurrection, about defeating death itself. But it's also about death. It also is about suffering. It also is about going through the hard things to the glory of God. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. We talked about this last week. It says, now we have this treasure in clay jars, referring to us. So that, why? This extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. The moment you think it's from yourself, God is no longer working in your life in a dramatic and radical way because he wants to do it in a way where he gets the glory, not yourself. Verse 8 is what we're going to zero in on, but I'm going to read the rest for the context as well. Look at this, underline, we are afflicted. Underline this word, afflicted. Not only afflicted, but we are afflicted, look, in every way. This word afflicted here in the Greek is phlebo. It doesn't matter, but what it essentially means, though, is it's not only, some of us may, from our background, when we think affliction, maybe you think emotional affliction, or maybe you think mental, or maybe you think psychological or physical, spiritual. It's literally all of the above. He's saying we are afflicted. This word says uh, kind of being cornered in every area of life where things are just difficult. Mentally, physically, spiritually, all of these things. I think it's helpful for us as followers of the way. Spiritual warfare includes the physical dimension, amen? It includes the mental dimension. There are things happening. Anytime there's pain in our life, that God uses it, but so does the enemy. So we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. This word crush means if because we're not without this, but if you have this, it means to be cornered in a room. It means without hope of escape. There is no way out. He's saying, no, that's not us. We have a way out. We have hope. There is a way to escape. Again, let's read. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We'll look at that next week about the will of God. I think it'll be really helpful. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. That verse right there is something to meditate on for the next month. Verse 11, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then, death is at work in us. He's talking about the, the leaders of the church. Christians who are following the way, sharing the gospel, but life in you. Through this suffering, it brings about life in others. The title of our message today is Suffering is Buffering. Suffering is Buffering. Let's pray. Father God, I just ask you to really help us in this message. I know of all topics, for me personally, I have never enjoyed suffering. I've always been one to run away from it. God, I've always been one not to trust you with it. And so I, I kind of present this message as something that I have been really trying to preach to my own heart this week. And I'm so grateful, God, the revelations of love that you've given me by studying these passages we're looking at tonight. I pray that the same would happen for the rest of our congregation. God, I pray that you'd be gracious to us. God, I pray that you would open all of our hearts to trust your love, to trust your plan, even in the midst of pain, 
even in the midst of suffering, because as we just sang earlier, even the darkest days are temporary. God, we praise you for that because of the resurrection of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Everybody says, amen. Amen. Suffering is a difficult topic, and I think, uh, of course, we're talking about it more than ever this past year. It's about like the one-year anniversary. I think it's been one year since we were at the Harkins movie theater, then we were no longer there. And I think part of it is because society itself, the kind of what we believe, um, I like to call secular society, which again isn't quote-unquote a religion, but it really is because it has a lot of belief systems. We're the first civilization that is shocked at suffering. We bought the lie, starting about 1950s, that, hey, we can actually make life, we can progress so much where we'll no longer be in pain. And a lot of us have bought into that lie. If we just have the right amount of money, if we just have the right neighborhood, if we just have the right X, Y, and Z, we can create a bubble around us. We're in the greatest country of all time, and nothing can touch us. And I think it's amazing. We're kind of shocked that there's this thing called death. It's the one thing that's inevitable for every single one of us, And we don't have an answer for it in today's society. Not only that, and again, this is harsh, it's hard, but we don't have an answer for illness. We don't have an answer for separation, for sorrow, and for pain. Tim Keller puts it this way. I think it's a really helpful quote on the screen. It says, Secular society cannot provide any effective antidote to despair because the immediate pleasures are the whole point. We've made entire life, everything is about the immediate pleasures. Well, guess what suffering does? It takes those away. We're here to say it brings about an eternal pleasure. That's, that's, whole, that's the whole theme of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But us as a society would rather just skip the eternal and, and just enjoy the immediate. That is what has been trained in our brains for so long. And so I think we have to give all, all of us grace. Suffering is difficult. We were bathed in a society to just go from one immediate pleasure to the next. But I think God has something so much more for us. Here are two secular perspectives, I would say, on suffering. You're in one of these two camps uh, if you look at suffering. Number one is what I call the hopeless romantic. Now, this one is a lot harder today because of what's happened in this past year, but I would describe the hopeless romantic as filled with extreme naivete. Is that how you say the word? Naivete. Naive, naivete. Yes, it is, okay? I'm the one with the microphone, so that's what it means, right? Extreme naivete. You're just naive about the world. Everything's going to be okay. Ignorance is bliss, and you're just going to make it. And before last year, a lot of us could kind of pull this off. Of course, we have deaths in the family It's kind of a season where we're a little bit in despair, but then we just remember humanity is good. My life's going to get better. Everything's going to turn around, which again, some of that positivity is very helpful. You're much more fun to be around. But there is this romanticism, this fakeness about it, where at the end of the day, the only way you could be happy is to not think about life and death. You just, again, enjoy immediate pleasures of life. What I say a lot of us have transitioned to in this past year when we look at uh, suffering is called the helplessly frantic. You know I had to make it rhyme, guys. You know, my job is so hard. Okay, so you have the hopeless romantic or the helplessly frantic. You're not filled with naivete. You're filled with negativity, okay? It's got to rhyme, y'all. It's just got to work. We see pain and sorrow all day, every day. We try to soothe ourselves, of course, but a lot of us try to soothe ourselves for some reason by trying to get more news. We think if we just know how terrible the world is, somehow I'll feel better. And guess what? That never works. We're helplessly frantic. We don't know what to do about it, but we'd rather know about all the things that we don't know what to do about. And honestly, outside of King Jesus, I don't know how many more perspectives you can have on suffering. 
You can be hopeless, ignorance is bliss, or you can always be every day, the sky is falling. What I love about the Christian faith, it doesn't ignore suffering, but it also doesn't like adore suffering, right? It pushes through it. We use it. It is inevitable, but it always brings something more. So here are three. This is going to be, I could, I could do a whole workshop on suffering. I'm not smart enough, but I could if I studied long enough on this. Here's three theological perspectives on suffering. And I would say I actually fall in all of these camps in different categories. So let's say number one, a lot of us, when we talk about suffering as Christians, those who read the Bible, number one, this one will make you the most uncomfortable. We think, okay, God assigns suffering. Now, this is very difficult because if you're suffering in your life and you think all God ever does is assign suffering, it's really hard for you to sing about the love of God because all you feel is his wrath. Let me just say, if you're a follower of the way of Jesus, I believe all of his punishment was laid completely on the cross. Amen? Jesus, God does not punish you. He never will punish you because it was taken care of on the cross. That's why we sing every week. We love you, Jesus. You're the best, Jesus. We're a big fan of you, Jesus. Amen? You are Savior. You're our Lord. But there are times in the biblical text where it does look like God assigns suffering. For example, King Nebuchadnezzar, in his pride, God struck him down, made him into a fool to make a point. You have the Pharaoh. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let my people go. Yeah, 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 right? And so he assigns these 10 plagues. So you do see it in the text. You can't say God just never does it. It happens. And also we do believe in Orthodox Christianity, which means we believe in hell. So to some extent, there, he assigns that, right? If you don't believe in Jesus, you are there for eternity. Here's a second perspective on suffering. Number two is God allows suffering. This one is kind of helpful, it's also true, we, we very much see this in, this in the book of Job, right? The devil actually has to ask God's permission. Hey, who can I just, I want to ruin somebody's day. Can I ruin Job's? And God is like, you can take everything from him but his life. And that's exactly what Job does. It's really, really sad. They take his kids, they take the livestock, they take everything except his wife, which I would actually argue it's actually the grace of God to allow somebody else in his family to be there. I'm going to edit that in the tape later. So God allows suffering. And sometimes God allows it in your life because he knows what it's going to do in the long haul. Job gets everything back tenfold. But then I don't know. There's still something like, is that it? Is that the only perspectives we have on suffering in the Bible? There's the third perspective is God abhors suffering. He hates it. He loathes it. He, Jesus, for example, in John chapter 11, we're in John chapter 9 right now, but just a few steps later, Jesus encounters and hears that Lazarus has died. And it says, John eleven twenty seven. Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? See, when God created this world, he did not create death to be a part of it. He did not plan for you to grow old and die and be separated. He, did not, he has no joy in you having sorrow in your life. So how do you do all, and this is when it's hard because suffering is like, okay, God, which one is it? I want us to look at that tonight. What, what does Jesus say on what kind of suffering are we going through? And again, I want to acknowledge tonight, there's some of us going through relational suffering and pain. We're going through physical pain. I think physical pain is one of the hardest because it's a nagging pain that never goes away. You have mental pain. Some of us just cannot lift ourselves out of depression. There's all sorts of suffering where you and I go through. And I want you to know that Jesus cares about your suffering. It's actually the message of Easter. But also... He allows suffering. It's, it's kind of difficult. So let's turn your Bibles to John chapter 9. 
I still feel bad about that joke that I technically didn't make. Um, but anyways, okay, John chapter 9, verse 1. John 9, we have a picture of when Jesus suffered, I mean, when he encounters somebody who suffers. And I think it's really helpful for us theologically. Verse 1, it says, As Jesus was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. This is very important to the story. So his disciples, it's interesting, not the Pharisees, not the quote-unquote bad guys, but his crew asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents that he was born blind? Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. This is the most confusing answer to the disciples because we're used to a world what you get what you deserve. If he was born blind, clearly it's this man's fault or it's the parents' fault. And yet he says neither. I think it's really helpful for you and me. When we're trying to figure out and pinpoint why are we suffering, most of us have it wrong, especially if it doesn't include the love of God within our answer. So like the rest of us, the disciples don't ask, hey God, hey Jesus, what are you going to do in and through this man, through the suffering? What are you going to do through this man? Instead, they ask, okay, God, why are you doing this to this man? A lot of us, when we go through suffering, instead of asking him, okay, God, I have this suffering. What are you doing in and through me? We never get that far. A lot of us in our anger and rage, we say, God, why are you doing this to me? I think as followers of the way, Paul has gotten to the point to recognize, okay, this suffering is for a purpose and a reason. I don't always love it, but I know you're doing something in me, and through this suffering, you're doing something through me. So I want to give you, offer a couple of perspectives, and I hope this will kind of really bring life and freedom to your soul. I know for me, I have been suffering several different ways in my life. Some of it's private, others of it you guys know very much, um, just because I put my life on YouTube, but I really have been wrestling even specifically this week, and I really hope that this gives you life and life in abundance. Write this down. When suffering comes, the hopeless romantics are crushed with anger. When suffering comes, the hopeless romantics are crushed with anger. See, the disciples are saying, who was it, this man, or should he be really mad at his parents? What did his parents do wrong in order to lead to their child being blind? How should we punish those parents? Many of us are angry because we feel like the world has let us down. We feel like we did all the right things, and yet life hasn't treated us rightly. Right? You've been positive, you've been caring, and yet bad thing after bad thing still happens. You worship the Lord, you come to church every week, you even do, you even give to the church, you go above and beyond, and yet you still find yourself with that ailment, that pain, that suffering. And so you get to a point, though, where you're thinking, somebody ruined this for me. Who did this to me? A lot of us point to our parents. A lot of us point to all sorts of things. In fact, in Christian and non-Christian circles, I think the big one, of course, is you're angry at God. God, why did you do this to me? Especially if you think the only thing God does is assign suffering. He thinks that you, you may think God did this. He, he was the one who put that in your life. And let me just say, I think that's bad theology. And I think bad theology makes suffering even worse. Doctrine truly matters. If you're in Christ, he is not punishing you, friends. Do not believe that for a second. In fact, the very fact that you have breath in your lungs shows he's not punishing you because that's what we all deserve is just immediate death. So there is grace. That's called common grace. So some people, even tonight, you're maybe angry at God. And we see throughout the Old Testament, God allows us to vent to him. 
But the second thing is you may be angry with your family. Something that's helpful when we do spiritual formation retreats is we kind of pull out the family tree. And it's a reality. A lot of us have wounds because of what's been done to us. We also have wickedness that's passed down from generation to generation. There's bad habits. There's practices that we do because it's what dad and granddad and great-granddad always did. And so there is, you have to untangle that. You have to work through that. But you have to recognize you've also done bad to them. It's not a one-way street. We're just as guilty as them. And then also, a lot of people just get angry and they, they pick a people group. This is why I think we have racism that exists. This is why we have certain people in areas that are just oppressed because we are not happy with life and we try to feel better by being angry and oppressing other people to make ourselves feel better. So this is a really bad way to view life as a hopeless romantic, and if something bad happens, there obviously has to be somebody else that has to pay. But God says, no, that, that's not the answer. So the question is, because in verse 3, it says, this came about, so this suffering in your life came about, why? So that God's works might be displayed in this man. So we have to ask ourselves this question, how can God's work be displayed in our suffering that is currently crushing us with anger? I think first of all, even just right away, If you're angry tonight because of suffering in your life, when you encounter Christ, and I'm not just talking about the first time, but even tonight, just have an encounter with the love of God, he will supernaturally remove that anger from your heart. He has the power to remove that bitterness. I recognize how this is such a spiritual, I can't, it's hard to describe these things that only the Holy Spirit can do, but the Holy Spirit can truly take over your life and remove that anger. I think a part of it is because we recognize that God is a God of grace. When we recognize how wrong we have done to others, our eyes are enlightened. And we see how much we have stumbled. So it's hard to get angry at others because we also recognize we have fallen short so much. So I think that anger, just by the grace and mercy of God, it kind of goes away. But I think the gospel of Jesus does more than that. Our gospel is not just come to Jesus, you'll no longer be angry. But I think something better happens. Write this down. This is like the main theme of tonight's passage. Uh, Next slide. As you are suffering in life, God is buffering his love. As you are suffering in life, God is buffering his love. What do I mean by that? I'm not here to say God assigned that suffering in your life. I don't know. It's possible God allowed it, right? But what he's going to do with it, he's going to use it to make you become a person of love who gives and sacrifices for the sake of others. This is what makes the church unique. Have you guys ever seen that uh, movie, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood by Tom Hanks? Wow, y'all need to see it. Okay, it's a beautiful, it's, it's called It's a Beautiful Day. Y'all need to watch it. Anyways, I'm fascinated. I love the story. It's Mr. Rogers, right? And so I'm fascinated by that story. But one of the best scenes, I think, of the movie, Tom Hanks goes into this uh, man's house, and he's visiting this older man on his deathbed. And so he stays a while to encourage him and the whole family. And so you can tell a lot of time has gone by. They have food together, all this stuff. Well, on his way out, he leans over and whispers to this man. And you have in the context of the movie, this man, he didn't always treat his kids right. He kind of got his life together, but now he has this physical ailment and he is not going to make it very long. He clearly was on his deathbed. So there's a lot of sorrow happening in the room. So Mr. Rogers goes over to this man and whispers in his ear. And then the man says... Yes, I'll do it. And, he, and he, you can tell like his whole body, he is animated by what Mr. Rogers told him. So now he walks out, and the son helps walk him out. So the son couldn't help but ask. He said, hey, Mr. Rogers, 
what did you tell my dad? What'd you say to him? He said, quote, I asked him to pray for me. Anyone who's going through what he's going through must be very close to God. How powerful is that? See, as you're suffering in life, God is buffering in his love. And I know in the moments in my life, and currently we've been going through some stuff, I hate it, but I also have never felt more loved by God. And I've never been more convinced that God can change his people, can change people's lives and turn it around and shower people with grace. My wife and I, we've been wondering, you know, in this past year, we've had two miscarriages and, you know, it's hard. I know theologically, okay, I'm not going to be angry with you, God. I'm also grateful. I have three beautiful girls. And so we know other people have it worse, which by the way, when you suffer, don't play the comparison game. It never helps anybody. Just allow God, whatever he's doing in your life, just receive it. But I've also kind of opened my eyes to see, I think, you know, God has called me and my wife to really care for you guys, our local church, to love you guys. And something that is predominant in our church is we have a lot of couples who struggle with infertility, who struggle with miscarriages. We have story after story. And so we kind of, even just recently, kind of our eyes were open that God allowed us to go through this in order to minister and love the so many of our people who are currently kind of going through that same kind of situation. It gives us the ability to love our people to a greater degree. And so for that, I say thank you, God, that you're taking us through this season because I know it's not wasted. You have that in 2 Corinthians 1. If you want to study that even more, he makes that same point. See, God displays his glory through our humility. And I just love God often uses people who walk with a limp who've been through something. I love that. Mr. Rogers said it best. So here's the second one. So maybe you're not angry. The suffering you're going through doesn't make you angry, makes you guilty. Next, next, uh, next point. When suffering comes, the helplessly frantic are crushed with guilt. So instead of it being the parents, let's be mad at the parents and punish the parents. The blind man, maybe he was thinking, okay, I am guilty because of what I've done. For some reason, I was born blind. Clearly, I am just really, really bad, and God really, really doesn't like I'm so bad, I don't even have a chance to do anything bad. It must have been something I've done in the womb, but I am helpless from the beginning, and I have guilt. Suffering is hard enough, and you throw guilt onto that equation, and you are rattled with anxiety. This is exactly what the enemy wants for your life. That is not exactly what God wants for your life. Maybe for you, you felt like the world hasn't let you down. No, you've let the world down. Maybe when suffering finally comes, you thought, oh, I'm finally getting what I deserve. I deserve. I knew that was too good to be true. A lot of this has happened, so we start bargaining with God. We make vows to God. We live in this guilt. Now, here is what theologically is true. I'm going to preach. Guess what? We are guilty. Uh, look at this uh, outside of Christ. Should be on the next slide. I think it's up there. Without Christ, we are guilty of three different types of sin. Number one, we're the guilty of sin of commission. What is that? Doing the things we're not supposed to do. Hurting others, right? Not loving God, right? This is sin of commission, doing the wrong thing. The next category of sin you and I are all guilty of is sin of omission. So not only do we do the wrong thing, but we don't do the right thing. So, I mean, we can think of sin of commission and think, yes, I'm a sinner. But then you do this, and it's like, we're all in a mess, right? Like, it's, oh, man, you didn't walk your grandma across the street. Done. You know, sin of omission. So, there's all sorts of sins here. And not only that, most people just stop here, but here's the third sin, sin of imperfection. So, even the good things you do, you likely had the wrong motive to do it. 
Serving in church, you still did it imperfectly. You still wanted a pat on the back. You still didn't necessarily do it out of pure love because we are here and we are fallen. Now, let me make, make this abundantly clear. Without Christ, we are guilty of these things. We still do all these things, but by the grace of God and the gospel, inside of Christ, we are no longer guilty. We live in grace and not guilt. Here's this quote. It's just so important to know that, that we are not guilty because of Christ. Paul David Tripp says, How discouraging, not only to go through hard and maybe even life-altering circumstances, but also to think you are going through those things, look, because you have fallen short of God's standard. It's hard to run to God for help, to rest in his care, to be assured of his love, and to believe that his mercies are constantly available anew every day when you're convinced you're being punished by him. I wonder how many of us were missing out on the goodness of God because all we can think is the guilt of man. In Christ, you are forgiven. Jesus is not denying sin in John 9, so don't misinterpret this passage. But what he's affirming is his power over sin. He's affirming that he can actually triumph over these things. Again, theologically, the fact that you're breathing means God isn't giving you everything you deserve, and that's a good thing. One of the most quoted scriptures in all the Bible is God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We call this common grace. God makes it rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. But in Christ, we have even more gifts, even more grace. When I was running this week, I had to write this down on my phone, and maybe this will be a word for you like it was for me. Stop digging up your past and start digging into his presence. When you keep condemning yourself, getting guilty, you're so mad at yourself, you are not pleasing God when you do that. You're pleasing the flesh, you're pleasing the enemy because it leads to condemnation and guilt. Well, guess what? When Jesus died on the cross, he forgave that. He forgot it. You need to as well. Some of us, we need to work through it with counseling for sure, but I think a lot of us, we allow the enemy to keep bringing back old sins that were already forgiven, that were already moved on from. So how can God display his glory in a person who is crushed with guilt? How can he turn that story around? I'm glad you asked. Here's the next point. Maybe this will look familiar with you, for you. As you are suffering in life, God is buffering his love. It's the same point a couple points ago, okay? But here's what I mean now. Before we're making the point, as you're suffering in life, he's buffering his love through you. But also he is buffering his love in you. I know for me, I'm a Christian. I love to think about how God is using this to bless me, to bless others. But it's been really hard for me to finally realize God sometimes blesses me just to bless me. It's like this weird self-hate where I'm like, God, you're going to use me. Who cares about me? Just use me. Use me up. Make sure I love other people. And God is like, you can love people, but I need to make sure you love yourself. And I love myself, not because I think I'm all that in a bag of chips. In fact, I'm, in fact, I'm a clay jar, but I have a treasure within God has renewed me, has made me new, and God still sees me as Trey, and he loves and cares for Trey. And I think in suffering, we have to remember, it's not always for somebody else. Sometimes it's literally for you. I think suffering allows that where it goes from our head and goes into our heart. Look at verse 6. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva. <laughs> Just picture that, all right? Okay, so he made some mud from the saliva um, and spread the mud on his eyes. Verse 7, 
Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left. Notice he's still not healed yet. Then washed and then came back seeing. I actually learned when I was in Israel a few years ago, this was quite a walk. They showed us where it happened and how far of a walk it was. And especially for a blind man, it probably felt like an eternity. And I don't know why, but this story blesses me so much because I think this proves Jesus heals everyone uniquely. Some people, their story, read the Gospels. Jesus looks at a blind man, be healed, and he immediately sees. Other people have a different story. Other people, God (laughs) puts mud on your eyes from his spit and then says, go take a bit of a hike and on your way back, you're going to see. See, a lot of us are discouraged because our friend got healed in an instant, but God is, he got healed in a word, but a lot of us get healed in a walk. It takes a season of preparation. It takes some buffering. Be encouraged. With mud on your eyes, God is working in your life. And I love that the blind man had enough faith to keep walking. See, friends, God wants to uniquely love and bless you individually. So don't compare your journey. I know for me, about a year ago, I remember telling my friend, it was on a Zoom call, and this was before Zoom was the thing, right? Because it was a year ago. But I I told him, because we were talking about preaching and how hard it is, and I was like, I'm just, sometimes I'm just like, I just, I can't do this. And I said, one thing that's hard for me to preach is like just saying God loves you. How do you say just God loves you? I feel like it's lost the weight. I remember making that statement. I remember the Holy Spirit saying, you're going to regret that, (laughs) you know? Maybe it wasn't the Holy Spirit, but I I did feel like I think that's about to change. And I think this past year, God has brought me through suffering after suffering and struggle after struggle. But what I've loved and I've seen in the last six months, after bringing me through some of these situations, just hearing the fact that God loves me changes everything just knowing that he loves me. It just hits different. And even this week on my run, I said, God, I thank you for allowing me to suffer. Because without it, I wouldn't have had this deeper revelation of your love. Let's say this one more time. Look, as you are suffering in life, God is buffering his love. I have a a sign I want to finish with real quick. Here's the thing. As you notice, I don't normally do... uh, object lesson, so hear me out. But when suffering comes our way, typically I feel like we all see the same sign and it just says finished. A lot of us, most of the time, because of how we're wired, we don't just want to talk about the suffering. We say why. So when we see suffering come into our life, suffering every single time, no matter what you're going through, no matter what kind of pain, it just has this sign and it says finished. Finished. The question is, how will you interpret that you're finished? See, without Christ, and if you have anger, anger says that is right. Yes, they are finished. I'm going to punish them for doing that to me. I cannot believe they ruined my life. I had it all together, but they messed it up. I'm going to punish them. It's going to be my life's goal to make sure, because I'm angry, that people group, that person, my dad, whatever it is in your life, they are going to pay. And you're just angry, and you want to be healed. But friends, that will never bring the healing that you need. Also, though, some of y'all don't see that. You're too nice, right? I I, I don't want to be mad at anybody. But you also see finished. And maybe you've been raised in church your whole life. 
but you forget to apply, to appropriate the gospel into your life. You love preaching the gospel to everybody else, but you haven't realized God saved you on the first day, but he also saves you every day since, and he loves you and he's pouring his love out for you. So without Christ, without us thinking about him, our guilt, not our anger, our guilt says, I'm finished. Yeah, you're right, suffering. I'm done. I deserve this. I'm going to punish myself. I'm going to make sure I'm going to keep suffering. In fact, this almost makes me in a weird way feel better because I know I deserve this pain. You are correct. I am finished. And for some weird way, we convince our souls punishing ourselves is going to heal ourselves, but that never, ever works. And that's why we're getting so pumped about Easter. Because Easter, Jesus flips the script. He's saying, I'm not calling you to be angry, even though I have every right to be angry. God says, I'm not calling you to be guilty, to live your life. Again, we know that we're guilty, but we repent, confess, and bring something new into our life. And why? Because on the cross, in Christ, we can confidently say, you're right, it is finished. It is finished because Jesus was punished in my place. In Christ, we can say it is finished. So when suffering comes our way, we're not trying to figure out, who do I punish? Do I punish them or do I punish me? We say, okay, no, no, no. I got to figure out how God is buffering his love in me and through me because I know I am not finished. I know in Christ, it is already finished. So the suffering has another purpose. This suffering is buffering something else. I just wonder how many of us tonight just need to go before the throne and say, God, we're so grateful that it is finished. The payment is complete. The buffering has completely loaded and we can press play on the rest of the story that God has for you and God has for me. Can I just encourage you real quick? Hebrews 4. I just can't. This has been such a good scripture. Hebrews 4 verse 14 should be on the screen. It says, therefore been reading this all week. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, in case you get it mixed up, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest, look, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He sympathizes with us because he suffered. He gets it. He's been there. He's been betrayed. He's been physically hurt. He's been through all the things. But one who has been tempted, also temptation, right, in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may, look, some of us need to do this tonight, receive mercy. The guilty need to receive mercy. Quit punishing yourself. Allow God's mercy to flow through your life. And find grace, the angry in the room. Allow grace to captivate your heart. Allow God to change it because friends, There is no joy in being angry and punishing others. The joy is in giving and caring for others. But you know you have to first experience the grace of God in order to do that. Find grace to help us in time of need. The gospel has the answer. I didn't put this on on the screen, but I wrote this on my notes this week. And I've been repeating it in my heart because I want it to be made real in my life. Number one, to those who are guilty in Christ, it is finished. And hear me, I am fully forgiven. For those who are believing in Jesus, write this down, put it in the bank. Look, in Christ, it is finished. And look, you are fully forgiven. 
When Christ died on the cross, he didn't just die to forgive your past. He forgave your present. And hear me, he's already forgiven your future. You are, my friend, fully forgiven. You can drop the performance act. You don't have to punish yourself anymore. This is why we call it good news. What about the angry? Write this down for you. In Christ, say this over your heart. I've had to say, I've been guilty of all these things. In Christ, it is finished, and I am fully favored. I don't got to make sure I got even with, with anybody. God favors me. He pours his love out on me. He's going to care for me. He has a better plan for my future. He favors me. I am favored by God. I am the beloved. That makes you where you're not as angry anymore. You're set free. I had to throw another one in there because it's something I struggle with, not only to those who are guilty, not only to those who are angry, but what about those who are just rattled with fear? Write this down for your heart and pray it this week. In Christ, it is finished, and I am fully fortified. Ephesians 6.10 says, I fight with the strength of his might. God's not trying to say, suit up and prove it to me. God is saying, let me fight for you. Again, in Christ, it is finished, and I am fully forgiven. In Christ, it is finished, and I am fully favored. In Christ, it is finished, and I am fully fortified. And that is a promise you can take to the bank every single day of the week if you have confessed your sin and said, Jesus, I need you because I've been trying to finish myself. I've been trying to finish others, but Jesus, you have finished it all in my place receiving him as Lord and Savior in your life. I ask you, if you've never done that before, let tonight be the night and allow, even tonight, even though you have done nothing for Christ at this point, you can say also with confidence tonight, in Christ, it is finished. I am fully forgiven, I am fully favored, and I am fully fortified. Bring it on.